So there was a man who worked for the post office whose job it was to process all the mail that had illegible addresses. One day in December, a letter came addressed in shaky handwriting to God. Well, he thought, you know, he should open it to see what it was all about. And the letter read, Dear God, I'm an 83-year-old widow living on a very small pension. Yesterday, someone stole my purse. It had $100 in it, which is all the money I had until my next check. Next Friday is Christmas. I've invited two of my friends over for dinner. But without that money, I have nothing to buy food with. I have no family to turn to. And you are my only hope. Can you help me, please? Sincerely, Edna. Well, the poster worker was was rather touched. He showed the letter to his other workers, and each one dug into his or her pocket or or wallet, and they uh, came up with a few dollars. And by the time he'd made the rounds of the post office, he had collected $96, which they then put in an envelope and mailed to the woman. And as you know, the rest of the day, all the workers felt that warm holiday glow that you're now feeling, or, or, or hopefully feeling, the next week. Uh, thinking of Edna and the dinner that she would have with her two friends and that, you know, they'd made it all possible. Well, Christmas came and went, and then an, another few days later, uh, another letter came addressed from the elderly lady to God. And in typical fashion, all the workers now gathered around when the letter to God was opened by the man whose job it was to process the mail with illegible addresses. And here's what they read. Dear God, how can I ever thank you enough for what you did for me this Christmas? Because of your gift of love, I was able to fix a glorious dinner for my friends. We had a very nice holiday together, and I told my friends of your wonderful gift. By the way, there was $4 missing. It must have been those thieves at the post office. Sincerely, Edna. Well, sometimes things aren't as they appear. We don't stop long enough to think and reflect uh, and discover the truth. Now, all the passages of time may follow a consequential order, birth, adolescence, working years, retirement, death. Our actual lives are seldom so linear and orderly, are they? Uh, we don't give consideration to life events uh, until... Uh, some later time, usually, uh, 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 until something happens to someone else. For instance, you don't consider your own birth at birth, but rather when you give birth or someone close to you gives birth. Uh, you don't think about death until you get real close to it or when someone close to you passes away. And I often think that Christmas is kind of like that. We seldom think about and reflect deeply upon Christmas simply because the the month between Thanksgiving and and Christmas Eve or or New Year's Eve is uh, just so busy. It just kind of flies by in a flurry, doesn't it? We seldom reflect upon Christmas. We're 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 besieged with decorating and shopping and baking and wrapping and packing and traveling um, the, the the schedule of your lives over the next week or two. And at, at one and the same time, we're we're a conflux of emotion. We're eager and frazzled. We're both sentimental and yet indifferent. We are excited, but maybe we're lonely. We are uh, happy and grumpy, all mixed together. Like Edna, we're tempted to draw the wrong conclusions about the holidays. So if we were to purposely think about Christmas deeply, 
reflect upon it, what would its simple message be? Well, over these last four weeks, we've been reflecting on the four simple core truths of Christmas. So far, we've learned that the Christmas story, with which we're largely familiar, is actually uh, a part of a much larger and more sweeping narrative that starts uh, with the word hope. Hope that things don't always have to stay the way they are. And then several weeks ago, we learned that Advent is about joy, that uh, Jesus invites his followers to experience a a life of incredible enthusiasm for being alive, uh, a life of profound gratefulness, that everything we have comes from the good hand of a gracious God. And then last week, we saw that Advent is about God's intention for families, uh, that, that they experience his love and his truth and his mercy and his power. And this morning, as Lori uh, suggested, we're now going to look at the crowning word of love. So let's pray together. Lord, we uh, bow our heads and our hearts before you this morning and say thank you. Thank you for every good and perfect gift that we have. It comes from your hand. Thank you for life. Thank you for light. Thank you for breath. Thank you for soundness of mind. Thank you uh, for the faculties that enable us to gather together today, right here at the start of a brand new week. Thank you, God, that everything we have comes from you. We pray the prayer you taught us to pray. Our Father in heaven, blessed be your name. May your kingdom come. May your will be done right here on the earth, in our lives, in our families, uh, right here in this room, right next door, Lord, where our kids are experiencing your kingdom. Lord, this week, as we spend time with our our family and our our friends, Lord, may your kingdom come among us. Prepare us for the brand new year ahead. And now, Lord, we ask that you'd put power on your word to our life. Help us to see things the way they really are and not to draw the wrong conclusions about the holiday in your name. Amen. Well, the Christmas season is a barrage of sights and sounds and smells and activities, all with their accompanying memories and expectations and emotions, aren't they? Advent can be either dizzying or delightful, depending on how you're hardwired. But I'm suggesting today that when we actually take the time to reflect and think deeply, we'll discover the simple and powerful truth that the Christmas story is really a love story. When you push through all of the holiday jingles and time-honored carols, the trees and the tinsel, the eggnog and the parties, the lights and the lawn ornaments, the cards and the candy, the shopping and the exchanging of gifts, at, at its heart, at the central core, the Christmas story is a love story. Now, for many of us, there's perhaps no story more powerful and captivating than a love story, is there? for the romantics among us, or the sentimental. I understand that for some of you, you, know, you like sci-fi, psychological thrillers, or mysteries, or comedy, or whatever. But nevertheless, there seems to be a universal appeal in a great love story. Whether it's judged by the numbers of Kleenex used, or the sighs that are heaved, or the pulses that are quickened, a truly romantic story in a book or a movie can burn its way into the hearts uh, for generations to come. From the star-crossed, Casablanca, Roman Holiday, or Love Story, if you've never seen those, put those three in your Netflix queue, you, you need those. To the triumphant, It Happened One Night, or Working Girl, 
or to dark tragedy, Romeo and Juliet. Some love stories are inspiring, others are heartbreaking, some are train wrecks, some provoke your sense of justice. Jane and Rochester's passion overcomes class differences in Charlotte Bronte's Jane Eyre. Classic love story. Edward and Bella's relationship is inevitable. It's destined, it's fated, if, even if not totally credible, in Stephanie Meyer's Twilight series. I think it's safe to claim that no matter what the love story, star-crossed or triumphant or a dark tragedy, in order for love to be real love, it has to be expressed. And God's love is like that uh, because it's expressed. It's real because it was specific and concrete. And, and Advent is the time when we celebrate God's concrete, physical expression of love in sending his son, Jesus. Now, friends, this story begins not when the curtain rises on the creation story in the book of Genesis, the first book of the Bible, but rather in eternity past when God existed in relationship in the Trinity. The Trinity is the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. One God eternally manifest in three persons. The Trinity was at the center of the universe, and there was a perfect completeness in the relationship that existed between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Mysterious, but true. Now, we experience as people, because we're created in the image of God, this notion that Real love creates a, an openness and a desire to share, right? Think about it with me this way. When you're walking alone on a beach or in the mountains or at a park or something takes your breath away, maybe, you know, you hear a, a cricket croaking on a, on a dark summer's night on your patio or front porch, or you see a sunset or a falling star, you think, oh, I wish he or she were here to share this moment with me. And that's because in many ways, some of the best things in life were meant to be shared. That's why those of you who are single often long to have a companion. That's why those of us who are married long to have children and grandchildren. The, the good things in life, we want to share them. And so it is with God, outflowing with the generosity that comes from real love, God planned for people you and me, to share in his love. And so then when the Holy Spirit created the first man and the woman, the Bible tells us that uh, God set them in a garden paradise of unparalleled beauty. We call that Eden. And God said, and I'm paraphrasing, Adam, you tend to the garden. That's your job. And my job is I'll provide for everything that you could possibly need. Oh, and by the way, uh, you can eat from anything that grows here with the exception of one tree's fruit, and that's the one in the middle of the garden. So Adam and Eve were free, totally free, except for that one very small caveat. But God didn't make them robots or puppets or pre-program them for implicit obedience because he wanted lovers. 
He, he, he wanted uh, them to be able to act and respond to him freely of their own volition. But because of his grand heart in making people that way, God took an incredibly colossal risk, didn't he? The risk was that his creation, his beloved, would actually respond willfully or volitionally in a different way, that, that they wouldn't react the way he, bless you. And in that sense, love is risky. All love, when it's real, is risky. Now, how long had God been planning to do things this way? Well, the Bible gives us some insight and the letter the Apostle Paul wrote to the Ephesian church. I'm going to read from the first chapter in a Bible translation called The Message by Eugene Peterson. Long before he laid down the earth's foundations, he, God, had us in mind. He'd settled on us as the focus of his love to be made whole and holy by his love. Long, long ago, he decided to adopt us into his family through Jesus Christ. What pleasure he took in planning this. He wanted us to enter into the celebration of his lavish gift-giving by the hand of his beloved Son. Long before we first heard of Christ and got our hopes up, he had his eye on us and had designs on us for glorious living. So we were the focus of God's love long, long ago before the world was even uh, made. He'd already decided to take the colossal risk in loving. Now, sadly, there was an unfortunate turn in the story. I mean, every story, every love story has a tragic twist in the plot, right? Satan tempted Adam and Eve to doubt God's goodness. And then uh, they ate the forbidden fruit there at the middle of the garden in a willful act of pride and rebellion, believing that they actually knew how to run and manage their lives better than God did. And at that very moment, all of human history changed. And I suspect that what really broke God's heart was the betrayal of his love. And the consequences of that betrayal were catastrophic. The results uh, are described this way in the Bible, in the book of Romans. When Adam sinned, sin entered the entire human race. His sin spread death through all the world so that everything began to grow old and die for all sin. So, now, every man and woman and child that's born since the fall of Adam and Eve are separated from the love of God because of this original sin. Something is broken. The image of God, which marked uh, his original handiwork in creating man, Adam and Eve, has now been marred. And the entire Old Testament of the Bible is a record of the sad succession of man's downward spiral in this separation from God. Year after year, decade after decade, generation after generation, men and women proved they were unable to change their inner spiritual condition and respond appropriately to the love of God. And consequently, they reaped the fruit of their sinful and self-centered ways. Our history books are, are liberally uh, sprinkled with 
evidence of hate and murder, greed, envy and jealousy, anger, resentment, parental favoritism, adultery, polygamy, racism, oppression of the poor or marginalized, civil war, repressive governments, idolatry, and every other conceivable sin. And these types of behaviors continue right up through the present day, don't they? Displayed on the pages of this morning's Peoria Journal Star or when you log on to MSNBC or CNN, you you see it. Perhaps you've discovered this very same truth in your life. Uh, We're constantly prone to think things, say things, and do stuff that's wrong, that violates the love of God, that's rooted in self-centeredness. And the Bible calls this sin. And I remember well the conscious... uh, Recollection, the the first time that I deliberately disobeyed my parents and played with matches outside with my friends, the Dooley brothers, that marked me as a sinner. And then the cigarettes and candy that I stole from Thompson's Food Basket, God forgive me, my membership as a teenager in the Bad Boys Club, the debauchery of my teenage years was just further proof of my inherent sinfulness. I know it's hard to believe today, but it really is true. Thompson's Food Basket is now the Busey Bank on uh, Sheridan Road. So just nothing uh, we can do can change uh, our, our inner spiritual condition. And our sin, at times it's well hidden, but nevertheless perv- pervasive. And at other times it's just visible and, and uh, headline making. But, but in either case, it's evidence that something is broken, that neither uh, strength or willpower or gritting our teeth with sheer determination or turning over a new leaf, any of those things can ever change. As good as they are, they're proof that there's a chasm that exists between the lover and his beloved. There's nothing we can do to fix what's broken. So thankfully, God took the initiative to change things that first Christmas. That's what's so powerful about Advent. Now, he'd been indicating for hundreds of years that such a day was coming, although it's true that the language of the prophets, the people through whom he spoke, was at times difficult to understand. But then just at the right time, in the manner that he had predetermined, God himself visited the planet and entered our suffering. And here's how the Bible describes this miraculous event in the familiar words in the Gospel of Luke. And while they were there, the time came for her baby to be born. She gave birth to her first child, a son. She wrapped him snugly in strips of cloth and laid him in a manger because there was no lodging available for them. And that night there were shepherds staying in the fields nearby, guarding their flocks of sheep, when suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared among them, and the radiance of the Lord's glory surrounded them. They were terrified, but the angel reassured them, Don't be afraid, he said. I bring you good news that will bring great joy to all people, the Savior. The Messiah, yes, the Lord, has been born today in Bethlehem, the city of David, and you'll recognize him by this sign. You'll find a baby wrapped snugly in strips of cloth, lying in a manger. And then suddenly the angel was joined by a vast host of others, the armies of heaven, praising God and saying, 
Glory to God in the highest heaven and peace on earth to those with whom God is pleased. Now, the Apostle John, the contemplative uh, mystic of the four gospel writers, uses slightly different language to record this same event. He says it this way, Before anything else existed, there was Christ with God. He'd been, he'd always been alive and is himself God. He created everything there is. Nothing exists that he didn't make. And Christ became a human being and lived here on earth among us and was full of loving forgiveness and truth. And some of us have seen his glory, the glory of the only son of the heavenly father. So God, who has no beginning, who stretched out the starry curtain of the heavens in creation, who regulates the entire universe by the the power of his spoken command, who knows everything and is everywhere present, this God stepped out of eternity at that first Christmas and took on human nature when he was born as a helpless baby in a hillside animal shelter, a baby so tiny that all he could do was sleep and cry and poop his diaper. That's God. That's how the king came. Theologians call this event the incarnation, taking on of flesh. That's what we celebrate at Advent. That's what we uh, sing in the powerful Christmas carol, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. Pleased as man with men to dwell, Jesus, our Emmanuel. That's a Hebrew word that means God is with us. I love how Eugene Peterson, in his translation of the Bible called The Message, says it this way. God stepped into time, took on flesh, and moved into the neighborhood. So Jesus was moved by his great powerful and unending and never-changing love to come to earth to make a way for us to be reconciled with God. That baby born to Mary and Joseph that night on the first Christmas Eve actually grew up, and in his words and his works and his way of life, Jesus demonstrated God the Father's inexhaustible love as he welcomed men and women, back into relationship with God. Jesus did what no religion, what no moral code or system of ethics could ever do. Over and over and over, he's communicated God's incredible, unending love for all people everywhere. He did that in his stories. A story about a woman who lost a, a coin, a shepherd who, who, who found his lost sheep, a, a, a man who was reunited with a, a son who, who left home and lost his way and, and came back. And in, in these words, Jesus was saying, I love you and, and I'm pursuing you. Jesus did it in his demonstrations of power as he forgave the sin of the broken, as he healed the leper, uh, the blind, the deaf, as he even raised the dead, as he fed the hungry, as he stilled the storm, as he delivered the demonized and those who uh, were, were oppressed, he restored their sanity. And in these kinds of works, Jesus said, I love you and I want you to have a real life, a rich and meaningful life, a, a, a life more abundant. 
And then in a lavish display of crowning love, Jesus gave his life on the cross, willingly laid it down for us, paying the price there for the sin that separated us from God's love. And he spared us suffering the wrath of God. Here's how the Apostle John quotes Jesus in his gospel. For God so loved the world so much that he gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life, the life of the age to come. God sent his son into the world, not to judge the world, but to save the world through him. There is no judgment against anyone who believes in him. And anyone who does not believe in him has already been judged for not believing in God's one and only son. So the apostle Paul describes the, the, the good news that Jesus actually shared this way in the book of Romans. Jesus was handed over to die because of our sins, and he was raised to life to make us right with God. So Jesus' death and resurrection communicate one thing. God loves you. That's the core theme of the love story. Yeah, he loves you. And that beautiful person sitting right next to you, in front of you and behind you, and the person that you live with, and the kids that live in your home, or the grandkids that live in your home, and and those beautiful people that you work with and live next door to, that, that live in your three neighborhoods of where you work and where you live and where you do life. God loves them. The simple and powerful truth is that the Christmas story is a love story. Way back in 1976, I met and fell in love with Tina, who is now my wife of 37 years, the the mother to my beautiful children. At that time, uh, I was a junior at the University of Illinois, and this is uh, actually a picture of us in January of 1977, shortly after we were married. I know it's hardly recognizable, but... um, (laughs) Uh, she was working uh, here in Peoria as the manager of a home-building contractor. I was studying landscape architecture at the University of Illinois. And because this was in a day long before email or cell phones or text messaging, and because, gosh, long-distance phone calls were expensive, like 50 cents a minute back then, we corresponded by letter. Now, for those of you who don't know, a letter is a sheet of paper... <laughs> with handwritten uh, notes or words on them. It's inserted into a thing called an envelope. And back then we affixed a stamp that cost 13 cents. And I wrote one of those letters almost every day to Tina for the six months of our engagement. And while we were reminiscing about these strange events just this last week, she told me that she would actually eagerly look forward to opening her mailbox to find one of those letters. She surprised me by actually confiding that she kept all of those letters through all these years, although I've never seen them again. They're hidden somewhere. But really, you know, when it it was all said and done, when, when all the sentences were composed and all the ink was spilled and all the doodles were drawn uh, in tender loving care on the, on the envelope, what I was really simply trying to say was one thing. I love you. 
And friends, when all the ink of the original manuscripts of the Bible dried, when all of the programs and ministries and outreaches of the church through the last 2,000 years are collected together, when all the sermons are preached, when all the songs are sung, when all the books are written, God is simply trying to say one thing. I love you. When we take the time to slow down and reflect and think deeply, unlike Edna, we won't draw all the wrong conclusions about things. When we press through all the stuff that surrounds this season and we get to the core, we'll find out that Christmas is really about God's love for all people everywhere. God is trying to say one thing in Advent. I love you. No matter who you are, no matter where you're at, no matter what you've done, no matter what you're currently doing, no matter how close or how far from God you might possibly feel right now, no matter how much or how little you've attended church in your history, it matters not. God's love isn't based on our performance or our behavior or our place and station in life, whether we've been naughty or nice. God's love has little to do with any of that. And you know what? You can't receive God's gift of love by joining a church, this one or any other one for that matter, by getting religious, by determining to clean up your language or deciding to do good or donate money uh, at the Salvation Army bell ringers or by turning over a new leaf and making some resolutions in 2014 to manage your sin a little better. None of those things, as good as they are, can change your inner spiritual condition and your separation from the love of God. There's really only a, a couple of things we can do to, to allow God's love to actually change us. And the first is that we surrender to him. We, we give up selfishness, pride, thinking we know how to manage our life better than God. We, we just surrender. We, we quit resisting his efforts to love us and accept us and forgive us. And we just say, God, I fully, completely surrender my whole life. I wave the flag. I give up. I give you, Lord, my whole life. And we say it in something as simple as this kind of sentence. Jesus, I give you my life. And at that moment, he'll forgive us and make us completely brand new, something we could never accomplish on our own strength or willpower or determination. So we surrender. And then we just trust him. To trust Jesus means we invite him in and, and, and his kingdom into every nook and cranny of our complicated, messy lives. We say, God, come in, invade, bring your kingdom, your truth, your love, your power, your mercy, your goodness into every pocket of my life. I, I invite you in, Lord. And then we live every day by acknowledging uh, Jesus every day. Lord, come and rule and reign today in my relationships, in my family, in my job, in my attitudes, in my values, in my priorities, in my leisure time, in my goals, my future. Help me love and and serve and obey you today, period. That's what it means to trust him. And it's just that simple. That's how we receive the gift of God's love. And so, my friends, let's let's not let the glitter and the gold of Christmas compel us to believe all the wrong things about the holiday, but rather embrace it as a simple and powerful love story. Lord, we're just humbled and grateful that 
you did leave the splendor of heaven to pitch your tent among broken people to show us the way back to you. Many of us, Lord, don't feel like we've done a very good job at responding appropriately. We, we're so broken and we've made so many wrong choices. We think and do and say things that aren't right. But, Lord, the, the, the thing about your love is that it's not measured uh, to us based on our behavior. It just comes full on. And all we can do is say, thank you. That is the, the radicalness of the gospel. The good news is that we get what we don't deserve. Thank you for your love. Your love that changes everything. Lord, fill us, will you, in this Advent season with hope and joy and love. And now, Lord, as we return to you a, a, a small token of that which you've blessed us with in an offering and lift up our hearts and hands in song, we pray that you receive these simple tokens of, uh, 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 for what they are, that, that, that we love you. And, Lord, I pray you'd empower those that desire to give and to serve but can't in this stage in life create space, uh, Lord, for the windows of heaven to, to be poured out to them in this year. In your name, amen.